0: Dr Alexander, it's wonderful to be able to connect today. My intention for this conversation is that it brings relief to anyone who is looking for love and reassurance in these extraordinary times. I think that if we're all honest with ourselves, we can all feel that there is more to life than meets the eye, but we're not sure how to explain it or how to find it. And we kind of resign ourselves to thinking, well, we might work it all out when we die, which is why you're, decision to share your near-death experience, which I kind of see as a compelling love experience, is such a gift to us. Let me give a very very brief introduction for those who are not familiar with your books and your story. You received your medical degree from Duke University School of Medicine in 1980. You spent over 25 years as an academic neurosurgeon including 15 years at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, the Children's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. You have performed over 4,000 neurosurgical operations. During your academic career, you've authored and co-authored over 150 chapters and papers in peer-reviewed journals, authored or edited five books on radiosurgery and neurosurgery, and made over 230 presentations at conferences and medical centers around the world. And we haven't even touched on what you've done since your near-death experience in 2008, which you eloquently documented in your book titled Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. And since then, you've gone on to write two more books, which we'll get to a little later. In A Proof of Heaven, you described a period of time in your life before your near-death experience as depression where you might say you were looking for the more to life that you could feel, but you couldn't explain. Then in November 2008, you experience a rare and mysterious case of bacterial meningoencephalitis, which puts you in a deep coma for seven days. Now at this point in time, no one thought things were working out for you. However, you are here to tell of your experience. So Dr. Alexander, Would you please share your experience in the context of what evidence it gives us to know for sure that there is more to life than meets the eye and maybe it's benevolent, compassionate, and absolutely loving?
1: Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head because I absolutely uh, have found in my journey and especially in the 11 years since my coma uh, in making sense of it as a scientist That ultimately uh, it all really uh, revolves around love and that of course is not news to anyone who's had a near-death experience Uh, those people are out there by the millions and uh, they would be the very first to tell you that it really is all about uh, that profound sense of love but as you pointed out my own journey has been kind of arduous and uh, I had Uh, Started my life uh, in a very scientific fashion with a father who was the head of a neurosurgical training program. He had been a combat surgeon in the Second World War, and it was his time in the Pacific Theater where I think uh, his strong belief in God and the power of prayer really got him through relatively unscathed. He came back to uh, the United States and uh, was very scientific. being the chairman of a neurosurgical training program and globally renowned as a neurosurgeon. But for him, his faith in God and and knowing of the loving power of prayer uh, was never in any conflict with his scientific knowledge. Uh, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and like many from that generation, uh, I always knew that science was the pathway to truth. And uh, I spent much of my life in that uh, academic career Uh, in neurosurgery, thinking I understood brain, mind, and consciousness. uh, And that's when I got the tremendous shock in uh, November of 2008, as you pointed out in your introduction, when I was driven deep into coma over just a few hours by an extremely aggressive and absolutely should have killed me bacterial meningitis. Uh, And uh, I spent a week in coma due to this uh, severe infection, my doctors estimated I started that week with a 10% chance of survival. By the end of the week, I was down to a 2% chance with no chance of uh, recovery. And that's mm-hmm. why they recommended on that seventh day of my coma that my family uh, just withdraw care, stop the antibiotics and just uh, let nature take its course. And soon after that, that I came back to this world. Uh, But when I did, my brain was absolutely wrecked. I didn't even recognize loved ones at the bedside like my mother, my sisters, my sons. And that's because the the coma and the process of my coma with severe uh, meningoencephalitis had completely deleted all of my memories. So I had no memories of Evan Alexander's life. I didn't even have any words or language when I was deep in this coma experience and although that's atypical for a for a near death experience to have that kind of amnesia uh i came to realize in the months after my coma that it actually served a very real purpose and that's mainly because my memories which were absent when i came back from uh, the coma completely filled in over the next uh, 8 weeks uh so that uh, it's it's really astonishing as a neuroscientist to see that the thing that happens when you get rid of the neocortex, the part that modern neuroscience says is absolutely essential for any of the details of conscious awareness in a human being, you actually have the most robust consciousness, more detailed and uh, alive than anything I'd ever had before. And that was from getting my brain out of the way. (laughs) Uh, And this is where I think the modern scientific community gets on board with this, because we're all coming to realize that that old material, scientific materialist myth of, of physical world being the only thing that exists, it's also called position of physicalism, Physicalism um, is in fact completely wrong, and that uh, most of the calls of forces in this universe are mental. Um, but the interesting thing, as much as we talk intellectually about that mental layer, which is something that's certainly familiar to, to uh, those involved in quantum physics and other advanced pursuits of science. But that mental layer is one that all near-death experiencers would agree in reporting to you that it is a binding force of love. So it is so astonishing to discover that we're sharing this, this one mind and, and uh, we go into a lot of detail about all that in our newest book, Living in a Mindful Universe, about the scientific revolution about this. But at the very core of it all, it involves that healing power of love. And that is something that uh, was certainly new to me as a scientist, but as a human being, it makes uh, beautiful sense. And uh, so I think, in many ways, the scientific revolution that's being led by near death experiences and similar kind of inexplicable human experiences, inexplicable from a materialist, conventional, scientific standpoint. Uh, is actually just opening our eyes to a much richer science that the universe is far grander than I ever would have imagined before and includes multiple layers that uh, go far beyond the physical. The physical is simply a projection from consciousness and this is something that this uh, modern revolution is beginning to point out very clearly. We're also realizing that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe and that the brain only serves as a filter to allow uh, consciousness, uh, primordial consciousness, to kind of creep into our awareness as this kind of very limited sense of self and kind of here and now. And yet, uh, in a much richer sense, as we can all discover through meditation and other kind of ways of getting into transcendental uh, levels of consciousness, we can find that there is far more to it and that uh, humans, by having access to that mental realm, actually have a tremendous amount of access to uh, determining our unfolding reality. But the thing never to be forgotten in all of it is the importance of that unconditional love as a healing force.
0: Mm. Would you spend a little time sort of... um... I know, I know that words are, are, are limiting and unable to encompass what love is really like, but maybe um, for those people who've not meditated or not found that meditation works for them or, or just are in so much doubt about everything that they're wondering if, real, if love is really real, does it exist? If they go to the effort to meditate properly, would they feel it? What would it feel I like? Would-
1: I would say absolutely, and that, that's one of the reasons why uh, my work for the last decade or so has been with my life partner, Karen Newell, who is the co-founder of a company called Sacred Acoustics, and people who want to learn more can go to sacredacoustics.com. But uh, the upshot of it is, you know, after my comb experience and in those first uh, months and year or two and three of trying to understand it all... Um, I was just uh, completely uh, amazed and shocked by the comforting level of that love in that realm. And it's really something that goes beyond words. You know, as human beings, we use that word love and way too often it's Mm -hmm. attached to some kind of condition, you know, like I'll love you if this, and you may not state the condition, but often that's kind of it. And I guess a parent's love for a child probably comes closer to that kind of universal, unconditional love, at least in ideal circumstances. (laughs) And yet what I came to realize is that love is very healing and it's something that all near-death experiencers kind of come in touch with. That's why they come back to this world and realize there's nothing to fear about dying, about leaving this world, uh, because of the comfort that's there. And it's it's, it's like home, it's really astonishing. Uh, people might think that they're at home here in this physical body in this physical world, but look how many people who have near death experiences who come from this very, you know, materialistic worshiping culture, kind of egocentric culture. And yet the vast majority of them would easily let all this go Mm -hmm. to enjoy that realm. Most, most of the times you read near death experiences and you find out that people came back out of a sense of obligation or responsibility to other souls. And that's what, Uh, you know, really brings us back. That's what brought me back was at the very end of my coma, even though I had no memory of any of the beings in my life before coma. When um, my 10-year-old son Bond was pleading with me on that seventh morning of coma after he'd heard the doctor say it was time to stop the antibiotics, and they had protected him from the worst news during that week. And when he heard they wanted to let dad go, he knew, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And he went running down the Uh, all the way into ICU bed 10, pulled open my eyelids, with one eye looking up to the left, the other eye down to the right, both pupils non-reactive. Those in medicine know that's a horrible thing. And I promise you, I did not see him with my eyes or hear him with my ears. I was already far too gone from this world. But he was pleading with me, Daddy, you're gonna be okay, Daddy, you're gonna be okay. And in fact, that was the reason I came back, was that pleading. I had no idea who this being was, But I could sense this strong connection and that I had this uh, deep responsibility to be present for him wherever he was. And it was all very confusing to me. But that's really why I came back to this world. And that loving force is so comforting that when people have experienced it in a near-death experience, they come back to this world and know there's never anything they have to fear about death. It's a relief of all suffering. It's a return to our spiritual home. It's when we reunite with our higher souls and soul groups. Go through our life review, where we revisit any of the crucial lessons still to be learned from our life. And if that, at that time in the life review, if we've handed out a lot of pain and suffering to others, you know, we have to feel the brunt of that. Because the interesting thing about that life review is, it's not you don't experience it from your perspective. You experience it as the emotion awareness of those who are influenced by your thoughts and actions in your lifetime and that's how the life review can be so revealing and so teaching uh, and another part of this whole big package of understanding in the modern science of consciousness is one has to realize that reincarnation has been very well supported by the mi- modern scientific study of, of these kind of cases so uh, it's very confusing if you go by our old religious dogma of The Christianity I was brought up in, Mm. it says you have one incarnation, then eternal heaven or hell. Uh, But that doesn't at all allow for the growth that's necessary through multiple incarnations. And the scientific Mm. data today, uh, and for those who are interested, I would steer you to uvadops.org. That's University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, uvadops.org. Tremendous amount of information there, more than six decades of study. Looking at past life memories in children, indicative of reincarnation, so you have to build that into our much bigger version of consciousness and what this is all about. But ultimately, the the biggest teacher there is the power of love to heal. And I came back from my journey realizing that uh, that love was truly the answer to all of this. And those who've read Proof of Heaven will realize that part of my issue was the fact that I'd been put up for adoption when I was 11 days old. Mm. Uh, And so I had that crater deep down in my early infancy, uh, you know, of my birth mother leaving me behind. Um, And so for many years, you know, not just before my coma, but even since my coma, I struggled with that sense of being worthy of love. I must say my coma journey has greatly helped me. Uh, uh, in refining and, and answering that question in an affirmative and very uh, beautiful fashion, but uh, uh, it's it is an important part of my journey. Throughout is this wrestling with whether or not I'm worthy of love, and and having to recover that sense of love of the universe for myself. And that's something my coma did very beautifully, was to help me recover that love, but also to help in realizing how loving others and, and expressing that love of self from the universe for others is the surest way of actually living and expressing that life of love that we as souls came here to learn. And I believe that's a very crucial part of the lesson I've come to learn is uh, about this loving connection. that connects us with the universe and with each other uh, and with all of this uh, this planet. It's not just about loving humans. It's really about a tremendous love for all of life and all that's going on around us.
0: Mm. So leads me quite nicely into my second question, which um, in your second book, the map of heaven, how science religion and ordinary people are proving the afterlife. You describe the world as a place where meaning is camouflaged. And to me, you know, we experience at the surface level we experience life in a very physical see it feel it taste it touch it way but there's another way to or is there i guess i should ask you is there another way to experience this well, human experience very
1: much is is to acknowledge the importance of our emotions mm. you know, our emotions are a beautiful clue about kind of the way forward in our, our spiritual growth and And that's why I often stress that even though the kind of scientific evidence here is very strongly showing that we are all sharing one mind, there is kind of a mental layer of the universe. Uh, And this is something that quantum physicists are are very comfortable with, uh, Mm -hmm. that there's a mental layer, a top-down ordering of causality uh, that is necessary uh, to explain so much of what's going on. But the most important thing to understand about that and in this kind of notion of a primordial mind and that the brain serves as a filter to allow that mind in and that but w- that essentially we're sharing that mind. Um, and that is that that binding force is one of love and that love can be tremendously healing. And that's why it's so important to realize that in any of our dealings uh, with ourself and with other people, uh, is something where we need to entertain that uh, because of this kind of uh, background ambience of uh, an incredible binding force of love that connects us all and connects all of our kind of lives and purpose and meaning and everything about how we would interpret our lives um, it 's so crucial to understand how that brings us into wholeness you know healing comes from the same root uh, as the word for wholeness and healing in many ways is just becoming more whole, more of the souls we came here to be. Mm-hmm. And I would say that uh, in many ways, that kind of abandonment wound that I had as an infant uh, that left me kind of not trusting the world so much and and not feeling so worthy that my own birth mother had thrown me away. Uh, therefore, I had this primitive kind of primordial sense uh, as an infant that uh, I didn't deserve to exist. And that's what fueled my own journey but in many ways we all have a similar separation anxiety wound of separation Mm -hmm. from source from that divinity especially when when you realize the this concept of reincarnation that all of our souls spend time in those beautiful heavenly realms of pure love going through our life reviews reuniting with souls and departed loved ones and then planning the next incarnation but the important thing from my viewpoint is that the plans for that incarnation often involve significant hardships, illness, injury, things like that, because those are the stepping stones. It's how we face the hardships in life that actually energizes and defines a path forward, a path of growth, that can certainly involve discovering that loving connection that we share with the universe and with others. So I would say that, um, you know, you don't need an abandonment Wound abandonment wound coming from adoption, like I had, because all of us have a similar kind of forgetting. Uh, There is a program forgetting. You know, the people who study past Mm -hmm. life memories in children will tell you you have to recover those memories before age is five or six, because by then those memories are being covered over, Uh, and it's a natural process. But of course, in our Western culture, with our scientific materialism at the helm, we mistakenly believe that we're material beings living in these bodies. But the deeper truth, as quantum physics and as the neuroscience of consciousness today explains very fully, and we cover this in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, in detail, uh, it's really more about the fact that we're spiritual beings in a spiritual universe. And when I use the word spiritual, although I know people can gain tremendous spirituality through religion, Unfortunately, uh, some of our modern uh, kind of religious interactions involve more of a conflict between orthodoxies that lead us to doubt any of the founding principles of those religions. Yes, but my journey showed me very clearly that the deepest mystical traditions of all the great faiths come into alignment. Uh, you know, whether it be Islam or uh, you know Sufism, uh, uh, Christian mysticism. Uh, a form of Jewish mysticism, uh, Baha'i faith, uh, Zoroastrian, uh, you know, all all these different faiths at their core have a commonality of connection with a loving, powerful, merciful uh, wisdom of a deity. Uh, And even even Buddhism, which is uh, not really looking at a creator god at all, uh, but there's this uh, notion of compassion, how crucial that is in living one's life. And I would say that all of our great faiths agree at these deep levels. And that's what we should focus on is more of the similarities uh, and none of the apparent differences, which are just human-made differences that uh, lead to conflict and kind of confusion. Uh, but there is, is uh, what I would say is, is kind of a converging uh, kind of coalescence of wisdom that arises from all the great faith traditions over time, but also comes from the frontiers of uh, quantum physics and of neuroscience and philosophy of mind, where it really very strongly paints a picture of our sharing of one mind. I mean, things like telepathy, uh, remote viewing, these are parapsychological phenomena that have been proven beyond any reasonable doubt to people who study the evidence showing us the reality of mind that is shared between us. And I would say that near-death experiencers have had that experience very strongly of of seeing that overflow of how we tend to see ourselves as having separate, uh, you know, separate existence in our human mind. The evidence that we have telepathic connection, et cetera, with others is very, very strong.
0: But I think um, on a more, day-to-day experience even if you're someone who doesn't meditate regularly or or doesn't sort of have a way of comprehending the love that connects us all we still experience hints of it in just synchronicities or or um i guess light-hearted intentions to get a car park or something like that you know we still have an experience quite regularly that makes us wonder
1: Well, I think that's a very good point. And synchronicities, of course, were pointed out by Carl Jung, the famous Swiss uh, psychiatrist uh, back in the mid 20th century. Uh, He pointed out synchronicities as a beautiful clue, as I would say, it's a clue of that higher ordering, that top down causality that I mentioned a little while ago, kind of that God force really uh, working in our lives. Um, and when I was saying a few minutes ago about the near death experience, um, uh, showing the sharing of the one mind, uh, it, it also is important to point out that in that life review, those boundaries of self, uh, seem to disappear because in fact, the main lessons of a life review are kind of the emotional experience that you witness of those around you. And so many people, uh, have, have shared their, uh, uh, life reviews with me, and it, it suggests that um, they're really showing us you don't experience the life review from your own perspective. You experience it by becoming temporarily those other people who were around you affected by your actions and thoughts. And I think uh, that's that's an important point to make at this uh, kind of appeal to telepathy uh, on very broad grounds, uh, is also a statement about uh, how we're truly sharing that one mind, that there really is one consciousness. And certainly in this modern neuroscience consciousness, what emerges is that the mental realm and consciousness are what generate this apparent physical realm, not the other way around. You know, the scientists, the conventional science that I worship before my coma, which is was really disproven about 80 or 90 years ago, With the advent of quantum physics that deterministic newtonian materialist science um is is very misguided about uh, believing that the brain creates consciousness whereas the deeper truth is more the other way around that consciousness is what creates all of the apparent uh uh, material realm or physical realm
0: so i think that my next question is probably um a really good lead-in to discussing your third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. Mm-hmm. And the the little snippet that I did see from your website, you advise us to keep our minds open and to suspend disbelief. I too have found that I had to open my mind to free myself of limitation. Would you talk with us about the importance of keeping our mind open when it seems from your your experience that suggests that it's not the mind at all that experiences life. So I'll I'll hand over to you.
1: I'd say it's very important to keep the open mind, but, uh, uh, you know, to, to remember that most of the beliefs we have as human beings are falsely limiting. Uh, especially the beliefs that originate in our materialist science uh, based in its theoretical models that just pretend, well, you know, in, a near-death experience is impossible because when the brain is inactive, you can't have any kind of conscious awareness. Well, that's not at all what uh, the the modern science shows. Modern science uh, actually shows very uh, clearly how consciousness can exist independently of the brain. And I think, uh, uh, that is that is really a crucial part uh, to understand. And the other thing is to remember that we're not going to th- think our way to these answers. You know, we're so used to, in our culture, that linguistic brain, which I promise you is no bigger than the tip of your thumb, Wernicke's area, where you put together all your words, your concepts of causality, all your linguistic uh, notions of relationships in the universe. That's where a lot of this mythology of our existence is created, is in our linguistic brain. It turns out that that little linguistic brain is also the voice of your ego. Many of us tend to identify with the running stream of thoughts in our head as who we are. But um, very important to point out that that little running stream of thoughts, the voice of your ego, uh, is little more than an annoying roommate. That's what Michael (laughs) Singer calls it in his book, The Untethered Soul. And I love that. And it's important for people to know that. You're not going to be thinking your way all the way to these answers. We're talking, especially when you invoke meditation, on doing things that allow the universe to really give us uh, much grander examples in the form of teaching. Uh, you know, we we think, oh, I have to think my way to it. I have to use my faculties of logic and reasoning. But in fact, for much of this kind of knowledge, what we really want to do is put that little linguistic brain and that voice in our head into timeout, and so when I do a sacred acoustics meditation, uh, one of the very first steps I take is I let my linguistic brain, the you know that voice in my head, state an intention or make a request, uh, you know ask a question or what have you. But then that little voice goes into timeout, and I've learned of, to really ride the tones of sacred acoustics and and just to kind of explain to your listeners the reason that I believe that the sacred acoustics tones are so powerful at engendering a transcendental state of conscious awareness is because these are differential frequency sounds that have an impact on the lower brainstem. Just about all the sounds you've ever heard in your life, and that would include any chants or anthems and and hymns that might have sent you into a transcendental state of spiritual awareness, those are all processed up in the neocortex, in the uh, temporal lobes, in circuits that have arisen over the last one to 10 million years of evolution in primates and humans. That's very different from the sounds of sacred acoustics and other differential frequency brain entrainment. These uh, these sounds actually influence uh, the superior olivary nucleus complex in the lower brainstem, a circuit that arose more than 300 million years ago in evolutionary biology. And from my point of view, it's uh, it's that very primitive of uh, sight where these sounds have a very direct effect that allows them to give us such transcendental experiences. And if you look at the testimonials page on Karen's uh, Sacred Acoustics website, you'll find that people have gained tremendous power from these kinds of tones. In fact, we just had a... Uh, uh, a pilot study published in the peer-reviewed medical literature using sacred acoustics tones in patients with anxiety and depression in a very busy New York City psychiatric practice by Dr. Anna Usum. And she found that over two weeks of listening to sacred acoustics, uh, 26% of her patients had a tremendous benefit uh, against the, working against their anxiety uh, from the tones alone. That's compared to 9% who did not listen to the tones but had standard talk therapy for their anxiety. So in other words, we have scientific information that supports the reality of, of, uh, of these tones to help people get into very profound states of relaxation and of uh, you know relief from anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation and things like that. I think it behooves all of us to uh, come up with a program of, of meditation. For me, it's, meditation is just a form of centering prayer. Uh, I think that prayer and meditation, dreams, these all allow us to access alternate levels of reality that have their own very real features. Um, and, and this is something I would just extend that discussion by saying that scientifically, You can also show, as has been shown in several papers that have appeared in the last eight years, uh, that, for example, the influence of psychedelic drugs like psilocybin and magic mushrooms or LSD, DMT and uh, uh, the active principle in ayahuasca, that all of these, when studied scientifically, you can do functional MRI or do a magnetoencephalography and show that the brain on the influence of all those drugs goes dark. The brain gets out of the way. It's the best scientific example we have currently to show us the brain is not creating these extraordinary, phenomenal experiences. It's simply a filter that allows them to express, but it's not creating them. And they're kind of alternate levels of reality. They're very important for us to understand our role as human beings. Now, I don't want anyone going out there and trying these psychedelic drugs Uh, on their own recreationally, because that's not what I'm talking about. I'm only using them as an example of scientific studies showing that the brain is not creating these phenomenal levels of consciousness. But having said that, I would also offer that, for example, psilocybin of magic mushrooms is now being shown to be in the proper therapeutic setting very crucial in helping uh, people with addictions, uh, especially with bad addictions like uh, nicotine, opiates, uh, alcoholism, things like that. Uh, One dose of psilocybin in the correct therapeutic setting can lead to a tremendous improvement in alcoholism alcoholism and addiction uh, for years on end. Likewise, cancer patients with severe fear of death Uh, appropriate therapeutic use of psilocybin in one dose can cure them for a year or more. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, But I believe what's happening with that kind of therapeutic use of those drugs is they're doing the same thing that we're trying to do with the sacred acoustics. And I would say the sacred acoustic sound is a lot safer. Yes. But ultimately what, what all of that involves is, um, Kind of opening the door to our higher soul and allowing our higher soul to um, to play a role in our ongoing kind of becoming more whole um, so and in sacred acoustics we can use it to fight anxiety and depression to find purpose uh, seek creativity there are all kinds of ways uh, and if you go to sacredacoustics.com karen has uh, a lot of guidance uh, training videos and things like that to help people use these tones to get into deep transcendental states of conscious awareness to help them address the issues in their life.
0: I think uh, on her website or yours, I'm just right now, not sure which which website, but there's a 20 minute free download for a, a sacred acoustics that's on meditation. Her, that's on
1: sacred acoustics. Yeah. I would highly recommend people go to sacredacoustics.com and right there uh, on the welcome page, you can leave your first name and an email address and you you get a free twenty minute download of an OM file uh, that uh, uh, you know thousands of people around the world have used and found to be very very useful and I think it's wonderful that Karen gives that away. she gives all her training videos away uh, she has an app that runs uh, very well on iPhones, but if you use the app, I highly recommend that you you get you acquire whatever files you're interested in through her website and then any of those that you've acquired through her website if there was a charge for them you get them for free in the app
0: mm. going back to the effects of of the transcendental meditation um, not the effects that's not the right word uh, the, the way it connects you to all that is what uh-huh. role in your mind and your experience does the heart play in connecting us to the oneness.
1: Well, that's one of the other things that I would credit to my partner Karen for teaching me uh, was that really what we're talking about here is heart consciousness. Mm. Um, and I think that's really the best way to look at it. Uh, you know, people, especially when we talk about primordial mind and this universal mind and the mental layer of the universe uh, as, as described in, in quantum physics. Um, it, that takes us away from the, the love and the love is really crucial. You can't understand any of this or make any of it work for you without fully appreciating that it is that force of love that really makes it all work. Uh, that's why when, you know, people come back from near death experiences, they're not talking about why they didn't make more money or have more cars or something, they come back talking about how much they appreciate the love they were able to give and share uh, with the world in their lifetime because that really is it. Uh, you know, there is nothing uh, important beyond that love. And for those who uh, are so into kind of material acquisitions and wealth, I would tell you that's fine as long as you realize that the spiritual wealth that all of us truly want only comes from sharing and using that kind of material wealth to help others uh to show kindness and compassion um and um you know i don't think too many people would argue with that uh once you realize how much we all resonate with those stories of people helping others and especially against the faces of hardship and with deprivation and things like that the more people can manifest that love and attitude of giving and helping others, it just resonates with people. That's a natural human story that people identify with. Uh, And I would say that you're bringing up heart consciousness is absolutely crucial. It was one of the most beautiful lessons that I've learned since my coma. I clearly came back from it, you know, as this neurosurgeon who was shocked into a whole new way of looking at the world, appreciating the power and the binding Force love in every choice and action and thought that I have. But it was really Karen pointing out to me that I should view it all as more of a form of heart consciousness that really started to make sense. And she also often talks in our workshops about how that resonance between heart fields can interact. And this is work that uh, Karen often talks about that's been done by the Heart Math Institute Mm. in Petaluma, Mm. California. They've done some wonderful scientific research.
0: They really have.
1: But the take-home lesson for me has been I've come to realize I can feel that heart resonance. For example, when we do group meditations and I get to meditate with a group, uh, I have become very uh, adept at kind of appreciating that, that kind of overlap, that heart resonance and how the kind of information we share, of that loving connection uh, just amplifies, kind of like constructive interference. Uh, that I can sense of my heart energy overlapping with those around me. Uh, And that is a beautiful concept that Karen uh, showed me how it it really works. And it was her interest in heart math that really helped me to get on board with understanding that heart resonance. But it's something I felt at many of our uh, meditation play shops uh, when I meditate with these groups. And Karen leads the meditation. And that resonance becomes very clear. It becomes a palpable uh, quality in the room of information exchange.
0: Mm. It's a very, very beautiful thing.
1: It really is. And the more people, I, I think uh, when people realize how much power comes by meditating, and, and it's because, you know, our, that little mind in our head, that little uh, conscious awareness in our head is not created there. It's allowed in there by the filtering mechanism of the brain. And so once you realize that your consciousness and your, you know, your personal mind is not just yours alone and and just sitting there between your ears locked inside your, your skull. But in fact, that conscious awareness is something that extends throughout the universe. That is a real gift. And to start exploring it, uh, I mean, meditate for a while and uh, you'll start seeing exactly what I'm talking about. I'm sure you probably have plenty of experience with meditation, but in talking with your your listeners, I can just recommend, give it a try. I meditate an hour a day. I know that sounds like a lot, but I find it that worthwhile that I want to prioritize it. And to me, it brings tremendous peace and kind of creativity and a sense of uh, connection with others. Uh, Often if I'm having a personal conflict with someone else, I go into meditation and I have a higher soul to higher soul meeting where we seem to resolve it all. And then, you know, back here in the material world, it all seems to evaporate and whatever conflict was there seems to go away. The more we realize that, you know, it's always been an internal world. Uh, This is something in in that book, Living in a Mindful Universe, Karen and I call the supreme illusion. And that is that everything you've ever experienced has been nothing more than a mental model within your awareness that's supposed to represent a world out there. But in truth, it's never been anything more than a model within your own consciousness. And that world and that apparent external world is under a lot more control than you would think by taking the time to interact with it Uh, in meditation and centering prayer, what have you, but to develop that relationship and develop that trust in the universe and also never forget the power of gratitude and forgiveness. But these these qualities, these kind of human uh, concepts have a way to really expand our ability to interact with, uh, discern information from, and influence the world. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the the grandest examples right there in our face of mind over matter, which is exactly what we're talking about, is placebo effect. Mm. Placebo effect has dominated medical studies for more than six decades now. is the gold standard for assessing any new uh, treatment modality. Placebo is it. And if you ask Big Pharma if placebo is real, they'll tell you, oh my God, yes, it is. They can't stand it because <laughs> right out of the gate, Big Pharma has about a 30% benefit that comes on average with a patient's beliefs, uh, and they have to overrun that to try and prove that their medicine can do even better. In fact, when you really review placebo effect deeply uh, and realize that people cure cancer and cure advanced infections with mind over matter and with placebo kind of belief systems, uh, you start to realize that... uh, you know, basically all of it is up to us and up to our will and up to our beliefs and overcoming the falsely limiting beliefs that come in from materialist science. So I said, materialist science is something that was uh, outmoded 80 or 90 years ago with the advent of quantum physics, but uh, so many in the world still haven't figured that out. And that includes a tremendous number of alleged scientific minds who pretend to be modern scientific thinkers, but here in the age of where quantum physics is the most proven field in the history of science, they can't even begin to glimpse how uh, quantum physics opens the door to free will and to mind over matter causation. Mm. And uh, That is where this world is advancing very rapidly. And the other site I would like to introduce your listeners to is GalileoCommission.org. Uh, that, I'm a, a, one of the more than 100 scientific advisors to that group based in Europe. Uh, and if you go to GalileoCommission.org, you'll see the manifesto that we put out there that says all this about how the world is changing, the scientific community acknowledging the reality of mind over matter and the power of mind and belief. And uh, that's where this whole world will change for the better. And the even more powerful uh, lesson from it all is that interconnectedness. You know, we have this false sense of separation that we're separate from each other, especially with the you know the nonsense of materialist science and with the misinterpretation of Darwinian sele- uh, selection and Darwinian evolution of the mid 20th century. And by that, what I mean is the concept of believing that it's competition and survival of the fittest. Mm. That if you outeat your uh, competitor, you—that's how you win. No, that's not true. Biologists will tell you to this day that by far. The principles that lead to success in the biological world are not competition and survival of the fittest, but collaboration and cooperation between members of a species and even between species. And that's where this world needs to change. All this insane focus on economic polarization and warfare and conflict uh, is simply missing the deepest truth of our spiritual nature. And... uh, of the spiritual universe that is right at the front of quantum physics and the neuroscience of consciousness and philosophy of mind in elaborating a path forward.
0: I think, too, that comes back to your statement a little while ago that we need to take more attention to our emotions or give more attention to our emotions because if we live from that premise that it's survival of the fittest, we might have enough of the thing that we've gone. And sought after, you know, at the cost of everyone else. But it doesn't ever make us feel good. We always feel a right. niggling, you know, we, we feel a niggling sense of, I'm going to call it guilt for now. But it it it's it's never the release that we get when we realise our connectedness and the freedom that that feeling has well, that's, that's the problem
1: with being a spiritual being in a spiritual universe if you've been uh, sucker punched into believing that the only stuff that's there is material stuff and we see it in the world of alcoholism and addiction studies all the time and people can get addicted to a lot more than just alcohol or drugs they can be addicted to work they can be addicted to exercise they can be addicted to sex or love they can be addicted to all kinds of things um, and uh what it shows us is you're trying to fill an unfillable hole with material stuff and there is just not enough material stuff to ever fill a spiritual hole what it needs is spiritual filling and by (laughs) spiritual for me that word uh, can be defined very simply um spiritual just means um uh, for one thing that we're all connected through mind. And that is uh, that is rock solid evidence coming out of the, the, the neuroscience of consciousness now that we're really sharing one mind. Uh, and that's that top down causal force. That's what we're sharing. And the other key ingredient of spirituality, I would say, is a sense of meaning or purpose. That it's not just some crazy, chaotic dance of Electrons and protons and quarks and photons all following the laws of physics chemistry biology and then assuming that 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 bottom-up Causality explains every event in human lives and every thought you've ever had every concept. No, that's wrong There's top-down causality Mind is something we share with the universe and it is filtered in through the brain and as spiritual beings uh, paying attention to our emotions and to the, you know, the getting the buy-in to these lives we're living, that's where we can really feel and live these lives most fully. But realizing that, you know, that materialist model, uh, you know, get all the guy with the most toys when he dies wins is false, very misleading. No, and and don't get sucker punched into doing that. God knows the world uh, has had way too many. Uh, You know, fatalities and everything from addiction and alcoholism, all from people chasing that material, um, you know, filling, trying to fill that hole. But it doesn't get filled that way. It gets filled with a sense of fulfillment through connection, through love, through responsible management of our lives, helping others, helping the least, the last, and the lost. I mean, there is so much more we can do in this world to gain spiritual health, fulfillment, and spiritual wealth that, uh, you know, is in many ways kind of the opposite of what we'd be doing if we totally bought into that materialist model. But the materialist model is dead. It is time to leave that in the distant rearview mirror and move forward and acknowledge our our sense of spirituality as human beings, uh, mainly manifested as a sense of connection and with a sense of purpose. But really, it's all about recovering that love for each other and for self, connecting us with all other beings and with this universe at large. And also that it goes in a direction, you know, that we are evolving. I would like to here refer to the writings of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the uh, French paleontologist and uh, philosopher who wrote that beautiful book, The Phenomenon of Man in the mid-20th century, where he... Basically, took evolution, and in in that sense, people were looking at it in a very small way of Darwinian evolution in a material sense. But he took it to a much higher level, talking about how all of consciousness is evolving uh, to a much higher level, and that's what I believe is truly going on, and that's what we all need to identify with: is that grand journey of consciousness evolving, and for Homo sapiens to finally truly become wise. Because I think today, if you look at the record of homo sapiens it 's a pretty pathetic example when you look at all the warfare, economic polarization and conflict, uh, the violence of people on people um, it 's it's really not the, the best and highest that humans can do mm. and it is time for Homo sapiens to truly become wise and that 's where I believe this awakening uh, to the nature of consciousness is a uh, part of our human destiny.
0: Mm. And well, I think we've had a wonderful conversation and um I'm conscious of time and um, but it's a great opportunity on on that note to you're offering um, three or four different su- support mechanisms at the moment for people to help connect us and feel connected and re- remove that um, separation um, nice. You've you, Your first webinar was yesterday, but you've got webinars every second and fourth Thursday of every month. For we're the actually
1: pu- going to shift that up. We're going to do them every other Thursday because okay. we, we realized that that was going to leave us with some big gaps of like three weeks at a time, and we don't want to take that much time away from people. So we're going to start doing it every other Thursday. But you're right, and I hope uh, I hope your listeners will uh, join with that effort. You can go to innersanctumcenter.com and and join up on our webinars also i would highly suggest uh, for people who really want to get going with this go to evanalexander.com and there's a free 33-day email course that's available right there as soon as you get to the welcome page evanalexander.com the banner wiggling in your face says 33 day journey into the heart of consciousness you just click on that leave a first name and an email address uh every day for the next 33 days you'll get one of the major topics out of the book living in mindful universe but also, the best thing is more than eight thousand people around the world have already taken that course. Uh, you know, thirty-three day journey, and they leave their own comments. They help each other. It's got a trend, And so people from all different uh, languages are participating, and it's become a beautiful community. But that's what Karen and I are really trying to do now: are create a community with inner dot com and 33-day journey at evanalexander.com, these kind of things, to help bring people around the world together, especially you know in this very turbulent time with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, as a crisis uh, in our face. I believe that this crisis, as I said yesterday in that, uh, um, in that webinar, I believe that the ultimate uh, goal or value of the crisis is it's gonna bring us together. We're going to get a lot stronger. Uh, And really, every challenge we face is an opportunity for us to grow together as human beings to help each other and uh, to really foster a much kinder, gentler, and uh, uh, certainly more peaceful world for all involved. Mm -hmm.
0: So just for the listeners, your webinars are called United in Hope and Healing. Or United and Hope and Healing. I think I, I said it incorrectly. And you've also um, are offering your Sacred Acoustics Whole Mind bundle at a discounted price of nineteen dollars. Now, if, if that's nineteen US dollars um, during this period of uncertainty.
1: Now, one thing I will point out um, is is we, we we really believe no soul left behind, so that um, that nineteen dollar offer is for people who have those financial resources but we also you'll see on that same page you can select for free if if you don't have the money right now you know if the uh, pandemic and unemployment and all those things are interfering in your life uh it's it's a free gift from karen and sacred acoustics so we encourage people who can pay to pay so we can keep doing all this kind of thing but we don't want the money to be a limit for anyone
0: So there's three wonderful opportunities that we all have to access credible support in our journey to a united consciousness.
1: That's what we're all about. (laughs) So, (laughs) So 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 glad to talk with you. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad you're getting this out to the world. You're doing a beautiful job.
0: Thank you, Dr. Alexander. Thank you very much.